welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hi and welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and today I have a really exciting guest. I'll be looking forward to this um, because is it right to say that my guest today is someone who actually is the safeguarding lead for one of my community projects. Um, His name is Richard Hamlin and I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about who he is and what's brought him here today. Hello, Tara. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be here on your podcast. So thank you for inviting me. It's an honour. And yes, uh, so I'm Richard Hamlin. I am a recently retired, um, I am uh, recently retired from Surrey Police, uh, where I spent 25 years uh, in a combination of working for Surrey and Sussex Police and a little bit of time um, seconded to um, the Association of Chief Police Officers in London. And during that time, I worked in various roles, most of them as a detective leading various teams. Um, I was the head of economic crime, the head of anti-corruption, which people think is really exciting. They say, oh, is it just like SO19? In reality, it's not, but it did have its moments. Um, Head of proactive crime, head of the multi-agency safeguarding hub, which we will come on to, I think, as we sort of talk through the podcast. Um, and I took a bit of time out from being a detective and probably the most rewarding time was actually away from being a detective as a district commander when I ran um, the Mole Valley District in Surrey, uh, had a team of uh, up to 80 uh, police officers and police staff working with me, uh, overseeing response policing, community policing, and working with partners, uh, charities, and the local authorities to provide sort of confidence in the community and sort of public safety. And and that was a really rewarding time of my service. But um, after 25 years, I decided I wanted to uh, set up on my own. I'd Policing's funny. You, you you move on quite a lot. Um, the powers that be, for whatever reason, whether it's to develop individuals, whether it's to shake up teams, whether it's to refresh um, commands, they like to move people on. So um, I found quite often I would start an initiative and not always be there to see it through to conclusion. For example, when wow. I was in the economic crime unit, um, we devised a scheme called Cash for Communities, where we could redivert funds from crime, so from criminal gangs, and use it for good causes. And we set up this scheme where local good causes in the Surrey area could uh, bid for funding. And the first um, funding we gave was to a uh, boxing club in spell form. And um, it was really successful. Um, And I would have liked to progress that, but I moved on um, and went on to a different role. So... um, I decided I was going to set up on my own. After 25 years, I wanted to become, I've always been a little bit entrepreneurial. I enjoy initiatives and projects, and I thought it's time to set up on my own. And I've now set up my own uh, leadership and development consultancy. And I train and coach individuals and teams really to be the best they can be. And we sort of explore various themes, but work with say with people with teams with organizations to see how we can make them better how we can engender a compassionate and empathetic style of leadership that's good for the company but also good for people and so make sure that people enjoy working in those organizations so much of what you said there um I could do probably a whole podcast episode on every single thing you just said there Richard one of the things that really excited me about you coming on today is obviously you are the safeguarding lead for one of my community projects Um, and we were having a conversation weren't we about you know how many people in the kind of average public really understand about safeguarding and what safeguarding is um, and what it can look like in teams so predominantly you work with the police don't you so what I thought would be really lovely to cover is kind of the work that you do to help those teams to manage what they're dealing with on an everyday basis and that includes things like trauma you've mentioned the word compassion as well Um, so would you be comfortable telling us a little bit about you know kind of on an everyday basis how can we start to think about what safeguarding is what do some of the teams you work with what do they go through what's the impact on them of the things they're seeing they're hearing that they're immersed in in those teams 
Ooh, that's a, <laughs> that's a wide-ranging question. And you're right, we could be here for hours. Um, so, so safeguarding per se is protecting people. Now, it could be people who don't realise they need protecting. Um, it could be people who are extremely vulnerable and absolutely do. So it could be. And safeguarding manifests itself in many different forms um, and there's different aspects of it. There's safeguarding vulnerable adults. And that could be people who um, risk being exploited, perhaps by families, by carers, by sort of strangers, by neighbours um, because of our age or uh, vulnerabilities associated with age or medical conditions um it could be um young children it could be children living in your kind of traditional family makeup it could be children in care who have um got in with the wrong crowd or risk being exploited and coerced into sort of criminal behavior or sexual exploitation or both often it is both um it could be um people who are being exploited through vulnerability because of their cultural backgrounds or people perhaps being trafficked. You hear an awful lot now about people being brought into the UK um, and then being used in forced labour, being sexually exploited, um, people using them to sell sex um, for profits. Um, Safeguarding covers all sorts of ranges, but also it's about protecting everybody and so i was really pleased when you asked if i would be involved in the csp um because it, it's very it's a very simple touch but you know it, it, it's a fantastic project and shouldn't need very much input from me as your safeguarding lead but i'm just there to assist if there are any issues which arise and let's face it in everyday life we encounter issues uh, that put people in a predicament uh, it could be that um on one of your walks, uh, you come across um, some antisocial behaviour, which people feel threatened by uh, and um, alarmed by. And perhaps I can just add a little bit of a light touch to say, well, if that arises again, this is how we can deal with it. So safeguarding, as I say, manifests itself in many ways. Predominantly, we're talking about looking after, um, you know, vulnerable adults, um, children uh, and young people. And of course, there's a huge safeguarding element around domestic abuse and coercive control and behaviour and making sure the victims of that type of criminality are looked after and protected. And I did a lot of work when I was in the multi-agency safeguarding hub around um, what is commonly known as Claire's Law, the Domestic Violence Disclosure Scheme, letting people know that they are perhaps have entered into a relationship with someone who poses a risk to their um, physical and emotional well-being. So I like to think of safeguarding as a bit of a funnel. So there's a kind of, what is it? What does it cover? If we come back down into the work that you're doing in some of the teams that you work in, how are you supporting people? What are those people going through? So for example, your work with the police, if you're comfortable to talk about that, what is it that you are supporting with them? So to help a listener understand a little bit more about how you're helping these people to look after themselves and obviously in the jobs they do, they're seeing and hearing things. Is that something you're comfortable telling us a little bit more about? Absolutely. Now, would you like me to focus on how I help, how I've helped my officers um, manage those situations predominantly, or how yes. we have helped victims of trauma and adversity, or, or both? I'm thinking the teams because I think that would be really relevant to a lot of people of how we can start to even a notice that things that we go through can impact us in our jobs in our day to day lives. How we recognise what that impact is, yeah, um, I think that would be really really useful in the current climate, particularly you know post pandemic with people in sometimes in quite difficult jobs anyway, but with the extra stresses and strains of how the world is at the moment. I think it would be really pertinent to talk about that. And it's something in the, since the pandemic, since before, in the last five years, um, there's a lot more openness and people are prepared to talk about the effects and the impact that adversity has on them. It's it, yes. it's now, you know, it's, it's a phrase I've heard a, a number of times and I like it. It's okay not to be okay and to let yeah. people know that and to ask for help. And as a compassionate leader or manager, one of your most important roles is looking after your team because it's your team who are going to be 
taking forward the objectives of the organization, whatever sort of line of business you work in, and a happy, safe, secure team um, is an effective team. And if you can look after them and assist them to get through adversity, um, they're more likely to be a successful team. It, it, it comes back, and we, we could do a whole podcast on kind of the, the Maslow effect about making a team safe and secure and then gradually aspire to deliver excellence. But it, in terms of what kind of what, what I've noticed is um, so policing, you know, it, it's it's my bread and butter. Funny enough, one thing I, I do now, and I will touch on it, is uh, I've since I've retired, I've become the independent chair of the uh, Pan Sussex Child Deaf Overview Panel. Um, yes, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, and it's really rewarding work. Every child or young person um, that dies is subject to significant review because children sort of shouldn't die. You know, unfortunately, you know some babies are born prematurely and, and have a very poor uh, chance of survival um, some children are born with um, congenital conditions which um, impact on their quality of life and um, they, their life expectation is limited um, and also there are children who suffer from sort of terrible accidents unfortunately there are um, occasional and they are occasional um incidents of homicide and we do unfortunately have children take their own lives and all of those come to the uh, undergo a child review when a child dies there's um, a multi-agency review of what happened what can we learn from it could it have been prevented is there any culpability but more importantly is there any learning which can prevent similar deaths in the future and to help the bereaved families and make the process as painless uh, as possible in the future so that's part of the child death review process and of course we're talking about trauma and it has an effect and i see the effect it has on most professionals who deal with it day in day out and and i will come back to that but in terms of the policing I joined um, in 1997, so probably after that kind of heyday of, you know, what you saw depicted on Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes, uh, when there was a bit more raw behaviour. But there was still a bit of an old school view of of an approach to um, dealing with trauma. For example, uh, a chap I joined with, um, who's still a good friend of mine now, he... um, soon after he joined, went to a road traffic collision, which resulted in a fatality. Um, and you know, seeing a dead body is quite a shock. Not, not many people you know, outside of police, and we get conditioned to this, but death isn't part and parcel of life. Well, it is, but you don't see many dead bodies. Unfortunately, um, you know, occasionally people will find um, somebody dead uh, with, within their family or friends or uh, it, you know, maybe outside if somebody suffered an accident or worse. Um, and quite often people will see a relative dead um, at a uh, at a chapel of rest, maybe before a funeral. But for the emergency services, death is part and parcel of it. And you do get exposed to it and become a little bit blasé to it, which I, I always try to prevent because one, you want to do the very best for the people you're working with, for the deceased and their families. Yes. Um, but also you do have to compartmentalize it to an extent so it doesn't cause you too much ongoing trauma. And we will touch on that. But, um, you know, road traffic deaths are violent. And um, and my friend, he, he, he went to one, dealt with it very admirably for the first, the first time and um, returned to the station where his inspector said, ah, oh, you've been to a road traffic death, your first one, I understand. You're not going to cry, are you? you know things have moved on from then right. you know, it was a kind yes. of oh, you know, stiff up a lip you know let's make some sort of some sick sort of um you know police type humor about it and move on and you do need to have a, a dry sense of humor and you know some of the coppers i've worked with have been you know real wags and you know you know can light up a room with a you know a dry comment and just relieve tension but you also need to be aware of the effect that some of these jobs have on your teams um and it's a drip drip effect an accumulative effect um things like vicarious trauma so um being exposed to adversity to um 
to trauma to um, horrible events can have an accumulative effect um, and people carry it with them. And that's not to say that everybody is carrying uh, post-traumatic stress, but everybody, and I would say, you know, most police officers, I would think probably ambulance workers, you know, fire fire and rescue officers, they, the sites they see, they will be carrying around some trauma. And yes, I'm yeah. aware um, one of the roles I did and one of my most rewarding roles in policing was as a family liaison officer and then I became a family liaison advisor kind of coordinating officers doing that type of work and the very first job I got deployed to and it's funny and I hope I don't sort of choke up but I was I on some training I did recently I, I explained this story and I, I got a lump in my throat and I thought oh this is a bit awkward but it's yes. still with me and it was 2002 and there was a really um, tragic case of a fire um, I, I won't say where it was I keep it generic but uh, there, there was a fire I, I was deployed to where two brothers um, had died uh, they'd been out with friends socializing it was a really really cold january evening and um they had been to the pub watched some football in um, the pub with their friends and went home and the house uh, rules were no smoking indoors but it was really cold outside and i think they normally used to go out onto the patio area and have a have a cheeky cigarette and then go back in they smoked indoors parents were upstairs in bed and a cigarette was it wasn't extinguished correctly and um friends left and the brothers went up to bed and the house caught fire now one of them uh i don't want to you know obviously name a family i don't want to give away too much but one of them was a, a retained firefighter so he it was he, it was his work he he dealt with fires he heard the fire alarm going off and ran downstairs and spotted the front room um a blaze, but it wasn't too bad at that time. And he knew he had time to get his family out. He got his mother and father out um, and then returned upstairs to get his brother out, Mrs. which does choke me up. And he couldn't do it. His, his brother was six foot four, a rugby player, had drunk, yeah. you know, wasn't in, overly intoxicated, but had a few pints of beer and was in a sort of stupor type sleep. And he couldn't get him. And his parents could hear him calling to his brother, trying to wake him up. Um, and I pause because it, it's a really sad Take story. Take your time. Yeah. Your time. And, yeah. Um, and they died. And, and you can probably hear from my voice, that's, that has stuck with me for 21 years. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing. And I, I you know, I, 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 I did risk, I knew that would, would crack my voice and I absolutely have no problem with you playing it because um, that's kind of a trauma that um, a lot of um emergency professionals carry around with them i think about it now and again yeah. when i talk about it in my training i always feel really sad the family were magnificent yeah. they were a, a lovely lovely um family that they, they campaigned for um new houses to be built with um with water sprinklers in to prevent um fire spreading um you know so, so the, yeah. the seat of a fire could yeah. be extinguished quickly but they were wonderful people and they had two wonderful sons who past um you know before, before that time um and that's the sort of thing that when i became um uh, i say district commander in um, in the area where, where i worked in mole valley in surrey i tried to recognize in my teams that if they were exposed to incidents like that that we sat down that we talked it through but i made yes. sure if they needed a referral to what we called occupational health, but to welfare yeah. services, we could give them that. But also to be aware of what they were being assigned to in the future. So um, with a larger team, you can rotate and make sure that the people who are being deployed to certain types of job, you, you know, you can share the load. Now, in emergency calls, the yes. control room will often deploy the first available unit and you can't odds that. And it's part and parcel of the work. You can't have the police not attending road traffic accidents, not um, turning up to um, assaults or homicides, um, but yeah. you just need to be aware of how you manage your team as a result of it. I, I had a, an officer um, who worked in my team who went to, uh, he, he wasn't in my team when this happened, but he, he was a, a fantastic police officer and did a lot of good for people. And um, after I moved on, he was 
the first reporting officer to a uh, domestic violence homicide uh, in, yeah. um, well, I won't say where it was, but, uh, it, and it was terrible, um, terrible injuries were inflicted on the, uh, on the mother of some children who were still in the house. And he never worked again. It, the trauma he suffered from seeing the, you know, the the effect on the children, the scene that presented him when he he went into this property, um, he wasn't able to work again. And and so so clearly he would have suffered from post traumatic stress yeah. disorder. Um, but a lot of officers are carrying around uh, trauma from this kind of instance they they see on a daily basis, uh, or you know, whenever they go to one of those type of incidents and it can have a drip yeah. drip effect. Um, I, I went to a lot of, um, lot of deaths as a, as a detective inspector, we have an on-call system. Um, and throughout the, um, you know, 24 seven, you will have a response. So when there's a, what we would call an untimely or unexplained or, um, uh, unexpected death, um, you would have, um, a police response and often a response from detectives to see if there's any foul play. So I went to a lot of deaths and saw a lot of dead bodies and it's not nice. Um, and as yeah, I say, you do your matters. very best for the deceased person um, and try and make the ongoing uh, care that they get um, as, as, as good as possible and look after their family as best you can, but it stays with you. Um, and, Shortly before I retired, I went to a, a murder um, where a young man, I think he was 16 or 17, uh, was stabbed in a street. And when I got there, his body was still in the street and it was there all night. It was covered. We, we, we covered it to prevent um, it, it was in a residential area to prevent, um, you know, the uh, the trauma of um, you know people who live there from seeing it, but there, there was a lot of forensic work that needed to be done, and necessarily so, the body had to remain in situ. There was a lot of forensic evidence around it from where the assault had taken place. But um, when I got there, he, he was covered, but his arm was still visible, uh, and that stays with me as well. Say, so, I'm you know I, I I don't need counselling from it. It's just something that in my head. Um, was something that you shouldn't be seeing and isn't pleasant. And the accumulation of going to lots of these jobs, I've had colleagues who, you know, really effective, um, you know, senior officers who have managed countless um, serious and complex and major crime investigations burn out because of the ongoing effect yeah. of, of what this can, can do to them. So the, you know, in terms of managing trauma it, it's incumbent on leaders to recognize this in their teams to debrief them to understand the effects it's had on them to try to manage how, who is going and how often they go to these incidents and then once they've been consider ongoing care and support that can be provided to them to present prevent burnout sort of secondary trauma um you know things yeah. um you know, sort of compassion, stress, fatigue, um, you know, you know it, it's terms which are becoming more commonplace. And that's good because going back to are, 25 yeah. years to that, oh, get a grip, pull yourself together. You're not going to cry, are you, lad? We don't do that anymore. Yes. And, and things are getting much better as a result. I was just going to say that, the, the cultural shift. Um, just thinking about the early days of my career, so that's over 20 years ago now, that, you know, sometimes you, you know, obviously nothing compared to what you've been through, but, you know, sometimes you're dealing with families in distress, you're dealing with people in crisis, in mental health crisis. You're absorbing all of that. You're seeing it, you're hearing it. Um, there wasn't a model when I first started in the NHS for kind of debriefing. You'd have your supervision, but that was to talk about cases. But isn't it interesting, you know, the kind of cultural shift? And you said at the beginning, actually, as well, how can how can we address that? You know, the kind of stiff upper lip, let's get on with it, or even the kind of belittling, the minimising, oh, come on, that's nothing to worry about, let's get on with the next job. Is that something that you are able to talk about in your work with people? Is it something well, that's see, relevant uh, to talk about? Still? Yeah. I think this comes down to, I think this comes down to good, effective leadership. And yes, one, yeah. one of the things I I really advocate, and one of the areas of leadership I'm most interested in is 
in managing with emotional intelligence. And yes, and a really good point. This has got a, a, a label which emotional intelligence kind of grew up in the early 90s. And um, I think there was a couple of psychologists who originally coined the phrase and it was picked up by um, a researcher who, who then became a journalist called Daniel Goleman in the mid 90s. He, he wrote a book, uh, I think it's called Emotional Intelligence and has written several more since. And it's fascinating. But basically, the premise is that you identify what triggers you and learn to manage your behavior. So if something triggers me, if something makes me angry, Tara, rather than having a an outburst, which I'm later going to regret and alienate the people I'm working with or alienate you, you know, you say something to me which triggers something and I say, you know, Tara, that's outrageous and I abuse you. And you think, well, I'm not having him back on my podcast again. Um, you know, <laughs> and everybody's a loser. I learn how to manage my emotions. I know um, signs when I might be feeling emotional impact, um, trauma that perhaps is triggering me um, or other sort of reactions, uh, other emotions are available too. And, um, but then I also learn to recognize that in the teams and the people I'm working with and think I can see signs of, um, you know, perhaps emotional distress within them and learn how to be compassionate and empathetic with them. And then as a result, the the full team can operate on a much more even footing. You know, they can interact better. They can communicate more effectively and can operate in a much more successful, cohesive way. And in in a nutshell, you know, I'm I'm sure, you know, sort of uh, scholars of emotional intelligence will say I've kind of just painted a very sort of scant picture of it. But that in a nutshell is is it and it's really important that leaders dealing with teams um exposed to trauma and it does it's not just police it's not just fire service and paramedics it's social workers dealing with child abuse or the abuse of vulnerable adults it's teachers yeah. uh, seeing uh, signs of trauma in their um, in their classrooms dealing with uh, children from vulnerable backgrounds who need assistance there are countless um, professions that encounter trauma I mean Tara you do in in your work absolutely and um, people who um, I don't know if you have a manager I think you're I I think you're a a, I am it you are it (laughs) you 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 manage yourself but it's so it's really important that you recognize signs of trauma in yourself but if you're managing a team yeah. It, it, no, it it really is, and you do need to make sure you have outlets to, to, to you know, to, to deal with that, so you can condition yourself not to suffer from kind of burnout. But coming back to how someone would manage a team, I mean, you know, let, let's say you know, just come away from police and a team of um, social workers dealing with some of the um, sort of significant events uh, and issues that they have to deal with. It's having the emotional intelligence to spot, to have that compassionate and empathetic leadership to spot um, signs of trauma within their team, talk to them, manage the um, the fallout from it, ensure that they're not, um, you don't um, re-traumatise them, don't expose them. Oh, so you've just been out to this incident. Talk me through it. Well, you might need to, as a manager, discuss the implications of that particular caseload of that investigation but you perhaps don't need to re-expose that person to the acute levels of trauma that they've already been exposed to um, that's a really good point yeah yeah and that's and and social workers police officers um care workers uh, nhs staff when you're dealing with um trauma victims the last thing you want to do is to re-expose them so um for example uh you wouldn't just say to someone, so um, tell me what happened from start to finish and make them relive the whole experience. If you're investigating a crime and you need to get evidence, yes, you need to um, gain evidence to put in front of a court and yeah. perhaps take a witness statement or do a what we would call an achieving best evidence interview where you're you know, doing a sort of a video recorded interview. And that can be more compassionate rather than just taking sort of details down in kind of, you know, in hard sort of, you know, in a, a written format. But you can still probe around these issues and just draw out the key information without making them relive the whole episode. Um, because some of, as I say, some of the impact of the issues that people live through, uh, you know, to abuse children, for example, 
the last thing you want to do is to make them relive that. So it's, it's absolutely important. And coming back, I've kind of given you a bit of a long winded answer here. So as a manager working with teams in this area, you've got to have the emotional intelligence to recognize the impact it's having on your staff and identify ways of dealing with that, of working with them to help them and not re-triggering the trauma. That's exactly it, isn't it? Because I'm trying to think now, this is really testing my memory when you're talking about those two psychologists, but one of them, and I can't remember who it was, is it Gold, Goldman? I have to come back. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes later um, with a link. We're talking about the fact that it's not just about you know, characteristics of a leader to be able to notice it, but it's about having skills as well. Is that right? There's two elements to it. You know, having the, it's about the characteristics of an individual that wants to better a team, know how they're doing, but you've got to have the skills to be able to do that, if that makes sense, and how you can support teams to develop those skills. How do people begin to notice how other people are doing? Is that something you, you know, you cover in your oh, work? I, I, I um, love so all of this. So, and it's, you know, yes. there's yeah. different styles. One thing I have noticed is um, on some of the leadership training I've been on um, that, and this is going to sound like a bit of an pl- unashamed plug here, and I suppose it is. Um, some of the leadership courses I've, to hear more. Yeah. <laughs> I've been on is is just the theory of leadership. Here's a leadership model. Yeah. Look at it and understand it and consider if it works for you. Here's another leadership yeah. model, and it's theoretical. But what people need is practical leadership support and advice and training. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do. So um, some of the, so I'm. I'm, kind of skill bit. How do you develop those skills then from the theory, from your own? Yeah. Yeah. How do you implement it? So yes, take some good leadership theory. So take transformational leadership for example where you're taking individuals a team an organization from uh, and i appreciate this audio so you can't see from here from you know from a low step you know and go up a series of steps to kind of an elevated position where the company's um very successful is achieving the team is 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 working to the best of its ability. Everybody's happy. They all buy into the company ethos. You know, it, they've transformed the company from kind of doing okay, you know, to absolutely yes. firing on all cylinders. Um, but you need individuals who can spark that, who can ignite um, a, a company, who can ignite individuals, who can work with individuals to make them the very best they can be. And that's kind of the leadership I'm interested in because there's, you know, if I said I'm going to run a leadership course and we're going to go through various models of leadership, people are looking out the window. People are thinking, well, this is all very nice. And I've got a couple of days off from my day job, but I've still got emails to deal with and they lose interest. But if I can paint a picture of when I actually used that leadership in any given role, whether it was managing my team to work on a community safety initiative, when it was, okay, so we've got a particularly difficult issue um homicide dealing with missing people was often quite um quite a challenge because of the 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 unknown and the amount of um different uh, the the amount of challenges that could present Um, having a vulnerable missing person who you know, hasn't got their mobile phone with him. So there's no immediate op- ability to uh, option to do what we would call cell site analysis. And you've got to find. So, so I, I had a case of a, um, a a vulnerable missing person who was suffering from dementia and an elderly lady who went missing, you know, didn't have any means of being able to be tracked through kind of social media or, or phone telephony sort of work. Yeah, um, yeah. And those are the challenges when I used to really enjoy leading a team um, because um, you needed everybody to be work, pulling together, to be working effectively and, you know, pulling together the different strands, you know, search officers, um, you know, the, the police, um, uh, the, the police search advisor and um, and then detectives looking into kind of financial accounting to see if there was any kind of anything there could, that could be found to see if there was evidence of where somebody could be all of those sort of you know just those sort of challenges were fun and 
I enjoyed them, but it's all about, you know, implementing a style of leadership to get the best out of a team um, so they are all working cohesively and effectively together. And it doesn't need to be police. It could, we could be talking about banking or working for your sort of local authority or, you know, working um, for the charity sector. Um, leaders need to be um, implementing a style of leadership which is compassionate, which is empathetic, which has integrity, yes. which is really important, but which people can learn from rather than just, you know, relying on theory and what's written in a book. You know, I, I like to see kind of, you know, painting by numbers, I guess, you know, sort of real life sort of leadership in action. How do we apply this? Yeah. 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 Because you touched on something really interesting then. So obviously a lot of your work is with the police, but as you say, this model, the work that you do could be really wide reaching. And I'm just thinking, you know, if somebody's listening now and thinking, but I'm not in a frontline job or my team, you know, we're not dealing with that kind of trauma, but actually I'm wondering how many people in various jobs, various departments, various teams aren't noticing how trauma can show up in other, you know, when it's not really obvious such as frontline staff and how your work could potentially reach more people. So two two prongs to that answer, to this answer then, is one, trauma affects everybody. Um, you know, stresses affect everybody. Everybody has. Yeah. Um, so, you know, emotional intelligence and the Goldman model of emotional intelligence isn't just for emergency workers. It's yeah. for, it's everybody can learn from it because everybody gets triggered, whether it's, you know, road rage you know and let's do it so so you know I, i'm not going to put you on the spot tara but uh, i would imagine that most people listening to this at some stage have experienced a moment of um of anger whilst driving or somebody pulls in front yeah. of them and breaks or oh, cuts absolutely. them up or me somebody included. yeah he toots you and you think, how dare you toot me and you know and responds and then about 30 seconds or maybe a few minutes or maybe it's an hour later, whenever somebody and not just in road rage in when you have an emotional outburst, you know, if you have an argument within the family and, you know, siblings arguing with, uh, yeah. you know, their brothers and sisters or partners arguing as, as happens normally after a few minutes or, a, you know, a period of time. You feel stupid. You feel oh, I just lost my temper. I made myself look really, really inadequate, stupid. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and you think, why did I do that? Um, and so emotional intelligence is really important because if you can recognize that you're about to lose your temper and have some sort of mechanism to manage that, you know, whether it's biting your lip, whether it's just need to get a breath of fresh air. I just need to stretch my legs. just need to get up from my desk and walk around the office. I need to go out for a cigarette, you know, back in the old days when we used to have the smoking shelters, um, whatever yes, it might yeah. be, dealing with those triggers. So we all get angry and we all get demoralized and it, you know it, it you know I, I before i i joined the um the police i i worked for a civil service organization in an office-based environment people used to fall out people used to have arguments over insignificant things which the following day they would have yeah. forgotten about, yeah. about working practices and procedures so it absolutely can be implemented across the board and it's all about team harmony team effectiveness yes. um team yeah. communication and the teams that are successful are ones that where people do pull together they recognize um what sort of triggers each other and work around that they have the emotional intelligence not to um to push people's buttons but if i've if i'm working closely with you tara and i can see that you possibly you know got pressures from home at the moment or you um you're studying you're doing some evening class or studying as well as your day work and you've got some exams coming up but whatever might trigger somebody you recognize the signs of what is triggering them and step around it and help them to step around it and pull back from that emotional outburst which sets the whole department back makes people um not want to work with somebody else and and that's so important um and so that, that's kind of what I tried to do, uh, you know, and uh, I didn't always do it. And as the longer I was in managerial roles and w w was leading teams, the better I became at it. But um, 
it's really important. And if you can learn to recognize your own triggers and manage your own emotions and then spot those in the people you're working with, um, then that's absolutely what should be encouraged in 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 future leaders um in existing leaders you know people can still develop and i I say to people look you you know learn and review all the time reflect on how something went whether it went well whether it went um whether there's room for improvement but we can always improve and you know look at what you did on a daily basis a weekly basis when you've finished a project you know how can i improve performance how can i help the team in the future um so kind of in answer to your question absolutely we try to uh, i try to encourage um people to be the best they can be whether it's themselves as individuals and i do work i, I do some um uh, personal profiling and i often find that when i work with individuals we do a personal profile yes. we look what their strengths are, um, the areas where they have developmental um, areas where they can <laughs> improve their performance, improve how they interact with other people, um, communicate with other organisations. Um, and then what are the areas where they feel they want to develop? And sometimes as you talk somebody through, it, it's quite clear and, and they it's suddenly kind of a, mo- a moment of realization where we say, crikey, you know, I just need to focus on being better in this area or focus my emotions in this particular on this particular issue. Um, it's really interesting. I, I, I love working with people and seeing kind of their, their journey of um, discovery and how they can perhaps perform tasks and work in a team in a better way and lead teams um, more successfully. Because one of the things that you kind of put out there and some of the things that I was reading up on you, even though I got to know you now, I still did a bit of research as well, is that, you know, why do all this? Why have somebody like you in to help people look at their teams to understand trauma? Obviously, there's all the educative side, but what do people get? And you put it really succinctly, I thought, that, you know, you want to help people develop their full potential. So that's, you know, the team as a whole and presumably the individuals within it that actually by not talking about these things, not understanding the role of trauma. And actually, so, so many good points, though, definitely have to have you back on for another episode as well, is that, you know, it's not just about what goes on in the workplace, but what you're bringing to it, what you might be experiencing that might be trauma related or stressful in your everyday life, things you may have seen on the way to work, that how all of those things come together. I guess in psychology, we call that formulating. So for me, I really like that idea that you're formulating, helping teams to understand what might be stressful within the team in terms of what they're dealing with, the dynamics, what they're seeing, if they're dealing with the public, um, but also what individuals are bringing as well. So one of the things with the teams I've led, um, and I know um, – I know some of the social workers I've worked with um, and and various staff dealing with um, in safeguarding um, the way we encourage kind of interaction with sort of um, people suffering from trauma of any sort um, is to follow a sort of model. So first of all, you've got to demonstrate um, some trustworthiness, Um, you know, show that you are um, dealing with them in a transparent, open way and, and, gain their support and show that you're there for them um, and empower those people, allow them to make some choices of their own. So um, the the court process, the the evidential chain, um, do they need to make decisions about protecting themselves from a safeguarding point of view? I mentioned earlier about working with um, um, people who are living and and suffering um, from domestic abuse. will allow them to make their own choices. Um, it's really important that we are absolutely sensitive to kind of um, to various issues around culture, um, people's backgrounds, um, people's lived experiences, um, gender related issues we need to be absolutely focused on doing the best for people and working around those issues. Um, but other really obvious things, like tell somebody what's going to happen. Be clear from the outset. This is the process. Yeah. This is yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. There might be some issues where we need to talk about what's happened to you, but this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to do it as compassionately as possible. Um, could be that we can facilitate them having connections with people who can assist maybe um, 
there's lots of charities out there supporting survivors of various types of abuse um but also ensuring that their family and support network is absolutely focused on working with them to provide them the best possible care as a result of the trauma that they've suffered um trauma sufferers need time need time and space um trauma can be Absolutely. really disruptive um, and it can manifest itself in different ways some people can appear really blasé and dismissive yeah whatever i've moved i've i've moved on already um because they haven't yet it hasn't yet really sunk in and affected them some people could be completely the opposite and um displaying um you know shaking quivering trembling you know clear signs of shock so you know give people time they need um to deal with the trauma you know and let them help themselves as well give them an opportunity to sort of share their feelings um with you but in a location that's safe you know take them away from where they've suffered the trauma deal with them in a in a safe environment where they feel empowered to be able to talk about what's happened and and start helping themselves and clearly you know don't be judgmental um you know sometimes um events happen to people because they've been unguarded um because um they uh, something has happened which they weren't prepared for but for goodness sake you know we all make mistakes um never be judgmental with somebody you know you you know and it's awful you cringe here when you you think back you know whoa what did she expect she went out wearing a belt um you you know that that sort of attitude to victims of um serious sexual assaults you know hopefully those times have passed um but absolutely you know dealing with people who have suffered from trauma or abuse or, or you know significant injuries um you know, don't be judgmental, deal with them, you know, empathetically and compassionately. Um, and as I say, um, make, make sure that they feel um, absolutely safe and secure and you address any concerns that they've got and they know exactly what it is that you are doing to support them within the process to help them, you know, with their trauma, uh, you know, and then refer them on to experts who are, you know, better equipped to in an ongoing sense to be able to help them overcome and manage you know the trauma which possibly will live with them um, for the rest of their lives and that they yeah. need to be able yeah. to sort of to deal with that and um, and manage that so you know those are some sort of you know with the teams I've, I've led that is kind of it doesn't sound when you break it down it's not rocket science really is it but it's just a good common sense approach to dealing with you know people who suffer from adversity and as you say, I was really struck though when you said about about you know they're not judging in terms of the situation, but also that trauma response because some people might say, "Why are you not crying? Why are you not upset? There's something wrong if you're not showing any symptoms." But actually, just giving people the time and the space that we might all respond differently to things. Um, now, one of the things that I always do is ask people if there was one little nugget, one little thing you can leave us with. So my signature move, I show my age when I say that. One little adversity takeaway for our listeners is there anything that you can give us we've had so much already do you know i think the most important thing is in dealing with other people whether it's as a leader whether it's as somebody you know within the team is is just to be kind and compassionate that's probably the most important thing i would say as a leader um care about the people you work with and let them know that you care because you know a happy team is a successful team and I mentioned earlier that sort of phrase it's okay not to be okay and we're much more open to talking about the effects of trauma and um, and mental ill health Um, so be kind be compassionate and that's that's the starting point for any leader do you know what i have to read the listeners a little list that i've made from psychologists we like making notes we scribble away so from today i wrote down some things with me there's you know emotional intelligence go away look it up read up on it everyone compassion empathy look up vicarious trauma look up some of these things so that you can begin to spot them um but also thinking about how we can 
take our knowledge but put it into skills things that we can actually do to help ourselves but to help other people as well that we work with if people want to find out more about you and we're definitely going to have to have you on again where can they find you so if people are sitting there thinking right we need this guy we need to get him in Where do, where do you hang out? Oh, well, thank you. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I have a, a social media footprint. So uh, I, I have a, uh, a website. Um, my company is called Define Leadership Limited. So if you were to Google Define Leadership Limited, um, it's, it's, you know, web addresses, uh, defineleadershiplimited.co.uk. Um, but just, just Google Define Leadership Limited and you will find me on there. Um I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn as as which is where, where, where we sort of we exchange we compare notes quite often isn't it Tara but also um, yeah, I yeah. I'm on Twitter um, and um, I will um, send you details of how people can find me on uh, on various social media uh, I, I'm even on um, Instagram <laughs> he said very proudly <laughs> I just realized I haven't found you on Twitter I'm going to go stalk you later <laughs> the other thing I was wondering if anyone's local to Sussex they might occasionally find you walking around the park with us because you support my um, project so you which is just fantastic so they might find you having a little lap around yes. Portion Park at times as well right. <laughs> Richard thank you so much I'm going to go away and squirrel away and think of how we can break you've got so much knowledge to share with people and how we can break that down into some other episodes as well but thank you so much for coming on can't wait to get this episode out there um people need to hear more about you thank you so much oh thank you I've, i've really enjoyed it so thank you for having me on thank you for listening to this episode of the adversity psychologist podcast it's so lovely to have you here i'm dr tara quintrillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk you'll see everything i'm up to free resources my media work and my new covid recovery clinic as well remember to please rate and review my podcast it really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us the adversity psychologist podcast helping you one step at a time.